Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, as we just sang, that you would renew our hearts, that you would um, uh, call our wandering spirits back to you in such a way that um, we will be renewed. Uh, Father, I pray as we pray together that, um, uh, that your spirit would uh, have free reign in our midst today. Uh, Father, pray that, uh, that your greatness and your strength and your, and your um, awesome power will uh, just uh, uh, join us as we, as we worship you today and, and guide us in our worship. Father, we open the floor today for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have many things on our hearts today. We, um, we pray for those who are, will, uh, who are ill amongst us. And uh, Father, we pray that you would touch them in a special way. Give them strength. Give them uh, relief from the pain. Uh, Father, pray that you would be with, um, with all of our uh, families as they are in the process of fostering and or adopting. Uh, what a precious picture that is of your adoption of, of us uh, it, is a, it is a willful thing that they do on behalf of, of you in reaching out into the world and adopting uh, these, these wonderful uh, souls and, and children that they are, are reaching out to. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, well, good morning. And um, what we have today is a uh, real great opportunity to hear from uh, my brother Melvin. I have to be honest with you, I practiced his name all the way here. I, I live like 20 miles from here, and I practiced his name all the way, and I got it down. But then I got here, I was like, I'm not even going to try. So Melvin, brother, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, he is a, an associate pastor, excuse me, assistant pastor at, um, uh, at uh, Christ Pres in uh, Oxford, uh, and a good friend of many of us here. So uh, brother, we look forward to hearing from you this morning. Thank you. Oh, that's right. I'm going to do. I apologize. I'm. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, read the uh, scripture passage for Melvin before he comes. Thank you. Um, it comes from Numbers 21, uh, and of course, this is uh, while the uh, famous passage while the uh, Israelites were traveling through the wilderness. They traveled from Mount Hor 
by the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient along the way. And the people began to speak against Moses and God. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread or water, and we detest this worthless food. Remember, that's the food that they have been gifted that is, was so delicious when they first received it. Now they detest it. So the Lord sent venomous snakes among the people, and they bit the people. Many of, people, of the people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous snake and set it up on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, so that if a snake had bitten someone, when he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is the word of God. No. Good morning. Um, it's my privilege to be here. Um, is this podium meant for a taller person? Um, um, so, uh, uh, my name is Melvin Monica Vasgum, since Kevin uh, did not want to uh, try it, so I'll uh, say that. But uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I are visiting from Oxford, and it's a privilege for, for me to be here um, and to bring God's word to you this morning. So, uh, let me pray and ask for God's blessing as we, uh, as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, that we can gather in this place. Thank you again, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the promise that it never returns void, um, that it always accomplishes its purpose uh, for which you sent it. And so we ask now for your blessing um, and ask that your spirit, Lord, will, um, will change us, uh, that we will not leave the same way we came because we've been part of your body and because you've been at work uh, in and through us. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, the theologian named Carl Truman. Uh, Carl Truman now teaches at Grove City College up in Pennsylvania, but for many years taught at Westminster um, Seminary. But about 25 years ago, he wrote an article, um, and I know the article, the title of it is a little bit strange, uh, but the title of it was Being Bored Unto Life. Being Bored Unto Life. And it was all about, in this article he, he says, about the necessity of being bored. And, um, and, and bear with me. So, and he quotes extensively from a, um, a 17th century philosopher, a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. Some of you may, may know that name, um, especially about the quote about the God-shaped hole. Uh, some of you may be familiar with him, but he, he talks a lot about that. But, um, but, but Pascal, what, what Pascal said uh, in this article was, even in, during his time, in the 1600s in France, he noticed that people um, were doing all they possibly could to avoid being bored. And, and Pascal says that people did this in two ways. The first one he called is by, is by distraction. And, and what he said was distraction is basically people who would, uh, would basically engage in, in things that, just to entertain themselves. And, and Pascal says, look, I understand when a poor person, a person that doesn't have a lot, needs to distract themselves um, with, with, you know, with the odd dance here and there. That makes sense to me. But he says, why does the king, the great ones in, um, in the culture, 
um, surrounded by all the evidence of their greatness, still require trivial entertainment? Now, that question. And then he said the second way that people used to do it was what he called divergence. And divergence is what you could say is the people who would, you are, you, is, he said it's people who would fill up their whole day, uh, their whole day with different kinds of duties, things that they felt they had to do. Not they wanted to do, but they had to do. And it was the things that they had to do to maintain their health, their wealth, their reputation, their friends. And it was things that they, and so they would work from sun up to sundown, hectically running around, trying to keep all of these things afloat. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, you should know that that is, now this, now this is talking about something that's happened in the 16th century, right, in the 1600s. So, I mean, if, if there's any statement, and this is what Truman says, he says, that's very much like our culture today. And, and, and what Truman asks is, is the question is, is this, what is the reason that we are so afraid of actually arriving at a place where we are bored. Are we perhaps afraid of what we might find when we get there? And so in your Bibles, what you have in the story of Numbers 21 is you discover a group of people who are bored, who are discontented. Um, if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, where we are right now in the book of Numbers, um, you know that the story of the people of Israel are people who are journeying out of Egypt, right, out of slavery, um, into the promised land, into Canaan, all right? And, and, and you know that depending on where you land in the, in the Bible, between the stories of Exodus uh, into Deuteronomy, you're, you're, you're basically either very close to Egypt, Right when they are able to come out. So if you story at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you know that the people of the beginning of the story was about how Moses goes, rescues the people, and then they cross the Red Sea. That's like the big uh, deliverance event uh, where God parts the Red Sea and the people go across on dry ground and then they're in the wilderness. Um, and then when you get towards the end of the book, they are a little bit closer to um, the promised land, right? The, 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 their inheritance in Canaan. Now, that, that is a picture, um, when you get in the New Testament, you get that as a, as a picture for how Christians are meant to think about uh, their story. We are people who have been delivered, who have been rescued, who have been redeemed, who have been brought out of slavery. Um, and we are, and we have been given an amazing inheritance. The Bible would say it's something that can never perish, that can never spoil, that can never fade, that has been kept in heaven for us. And in some ways, that's where we're going. That's our story. That's where we're headed. But where we are in the story here in Numbers 21 is in the middle. You are, you are in the middle of the journey. It's, it's where we are right now. We are in the, in the midst, in the middle. Um, and the picture that you have here in the story is that it's a wilderness. The, the journey is not easy. It's hard. So to, be, to arrive at a place of discontent should not surprise us. It's unavoidable. The, the, question, the question that you should be asking is when, when that boredom and that discontent hits me, what do I do? And rather than distracting ourselves, like Pascal says, or filling up our entire day with duties, 
things that we have to do, right? How many times when you hear people say, I'm just busy, I'm just busy, right? You hear that all the time. And, and the question we should be asking is, why? Right? What is it that makes us want to do that? And so my invitation, my challenge to you this morning um, is to be bored. Not, not now, you know, not during, the, not during the sermon, like after, right? To be bored, um, because I think if we arrive there, it might, it might, it might reveal something about us. But not, not only something about us, but it, might, but it might lead us, all right? It might lead us to maybe recapture the wonder um, of, of our deliverance and also of our inheritance, all right? So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at this under three headings, all right? The first one is we're going to call it is discontent misdirected, right? How our discontent, our boredom gets misdirected. Secondly, right? Secondly, we're going to look at how our discontent gets redirected by God. And then thirdly, how God meets us with his sufficiency in our discontent. So if you've got your Bibles, look, look at it verse me. Okay? So if you look at verse 4, you notice that they are at the Red Sea. And they are going around the Red Sea. Now, remember, I said that when we, you know, the story of the book of, the whole story of the people of Israel is that they, that they began by crossing the Red Sea. Right? That, that was in, back in Exodus 14. We're in Numbers 21. It feels like they haven't moved. Right? It, it's, it's almost like they're going in circles, which, which they are. Right? It's, but in some ways, it's the feeling of that, that we're not going anywhere. We, right? we, we, haven't, we haven't gotten very far. And then also notice that they are the, 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 the country of Edom, or the, the nation of Edom is mentioned. Now, the, now if you go back and you, if, you, if, you, if you just look up in your Bibles to the, verse, uh, the first three verses of chapter 21, you notice that they just had a battle with another king. Um, and so they've had this success, but, God, but by God's design, they have been told not to engage with Edom. Right, they'd ask for permission, Edom says no, and God says, don't fight them, go around them. Right, so, he says, hey, look, we can take them, right? We, we just won the battle against this other nation, why can't we just take them? And God says no, and God sends them around. So, imagine if that is the scenario that you have, and that's where they're going. So, no, so here's what, one writer says this, look, the, the best way to sum up is, is that they were wistful about their, their, their time in Egypt, they, they, look back, they look back at their time in Egypt with longing. Right? Rather than a place of death, they said, wouldn't it be better if we had gone there? Right? And then they say, why did you bring us out here to die? Right? So they are fearful about their progress. And then thirdly, they resented their present situation. And notice how they describe that, how that resentment comes out. First... They speak out against God and against Moses. And then secondly, and then secondly, they basically say, we, we, this food, and, and here they're talking about the manna, the bread that comes out of heaven, right? They said, they're saying, they said, we cannot eat this miserable food anymore. The word miserable is a really strong word. It's, it's almost saying it's trivial. It's nothing. Okay. Now think about this, right? Most, most right? It, when, when we when we think about something like 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 this, right? The manna, it is impossible 
to trivialize the gift and, and not the one who gives it. Right? So you, you, cannot make some, you cannot make small what was provided and not at the same time make small the one who provides it. Right? Some years ago, many, many, many years ago, before I came to the United States, I, you know, I gave up all my Legos. You know, I collected Legos as a child. Right? So I gave up my Legos. I had one set, right? beautiful set. I had kept it in the box. Right, in that paper box with a plastic lid. If you, anybody you know what Legos are, right? You collect these Legos. I collected them. I kept them. I counted the pieces, make sure I didn't lose any of them. Right? It was, it was very, very special to me. And I, and I said, well, I'm going off to, you know, too old. Right? So I need to, I need to, so I gave it to my cousin um, who also collected Legos. So I, so I, I, I gave him this gift that was really, really precious to me. That was special. Right? And he took that gift, and then later on, I came back to visit. He had taken all the bricks. The box was gone. All the bricks were either mixed in with all the other, you know, 500,000 bricks that people have in those tubs, right? Yeah, everything was all mixed in together. And I was like, what, what happened? Right? What, why, why, why would you do that? Right? And, and even though I had given it to him, I felt something. It reflected, I felt that it reflected on me. Now, that's a small example, but think about it in terms of how God dwelt, dealt with his people. Now, if you think this, that, that we trivialize the manna that comes out of heaven, when you get into the New Testament, in John chapter 6, all right, y'all may be familiar with this story. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right, and then he declares himself to be the bread of heaven, the bread of life that comes out of heaven. And in John chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, when the people hear that, they, it actually says that they grumbled. They grumbled and they said, don't we know him? Isn't, isn't he like from Nazareth? Isn't his mother Mary? What were they doing? They were trivializing the bread of heaven. Just like the people of Israel trivialize the manna from heaven. Now, of course, in the New Testament, it's much to a greater degree. But if there's, any, if there's anything that gives us a good picture of what often our disillusionment and our discontent leads to, it often leads to trivializing God. Now, in today's world, right, in today's world, we might find ourselves... You might be in this room today, or you might hear about this. Is it possible for Christians to be bored? And I think, and I think that Christians can often get bored with different aspects of the Christian life. Let, let me give you three, all right? First one, bored with the Bible, right? If you hear the Bible over and over again, and we read the stories over and over again, is it possible that we come to the place where we actually says, did, did, did Jesus... Did Jesus really raise the dead? Did, did he really feed the 5,000? Did, did Moses actually part the Red Sea? Can all of those things be true? I, I've been reading this Bible over and over again. You can get bored with the Bible. Secondly, it's possible for people to get bored with the church. Right? You, might, you might have heard this term of, that, that might be floating around in, in our culture of people deconstructing. Right? People deconstructing their faith. Um, 
And, and one writer says, look, it's, it's good for us to, ha- to ask the hard questions about what we believe and why we believe it. But he says, for heaven's sake, do it in the church. Right? Don't, don't go and do it online. Right? Do, do it among people that you know and who know you. Right? Do, it, it's, you know, we, we, want the pla- we want the church to be a place where hard questions are asked and are met with. But so often what happens is when people get far, fed up or bored with the church, people just throw their hands up and they leave. That's not the thing to do. Thirdly, people often get bored with tradition. It's our instinct in us to look for the novel and the new. And when something doesn't come to us packaged in the new, we, we have a tendency like, that's old. That's, who, who needs tradition? Right? Why, why do we need to recover the old? And look, I understand there are traditions that are bad. Right? Not all traditions are good. But perhaps it's, it's good for us not to engage in what the writer C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, right? where, where the old is something that we kind of thumb our noses at. So there's nothing good there. So I think it's possible for Christians today, even today, to get bored with the Bible, to get bored with the church, to get bored with tradition. So that's how discontent gets, gets, gets misdirected. But look at verses 6 and 7, how God redirects the people's discontent. All right? Notice that it says here, some translations might say venomous serpents. Uh, some might say fiery serpents. Uh, so it's good for us to know that where they are, right? Verses 4, they are in the region of the Red Sea. That region of the Red Sea was notorious for, um, for creatures, especially snakes. All right? It, it's what, it's what when, when you have... When you have not a lot of water, uh, really dry, it, it breeds this insect. And that's what people have noticed, that, that even, even, as, even, even up to the, 19th, uh, the 1900s, people who have had these travel logs that we, have, that we have recovered from that time have noted that that place was just full of all these snakes. So know, know that the snakes were actually part of that desert, that part of the world. Right? Some, year, some years ago, uh, well, last year, my wife and I went to the south, uh, southwest United States, uh, to California, uh, to Joshua Tree National Park. Um, and, it's, and it's amazing how, you know, it's a difference between going, uh, when you go to that park, like the park ranger tells you, not, he doesn't give you suggestions about the wilderness, about the desert. Right? He basically says, make sure you have enough fuel, because if you're going to get stranded, you're going to die. Right? And then he says, make sure you don't veer off the path. If you veer off the path, you're going to die. Right? Make sure you have enough water. It's not a suggestion. Take plenty of water. Because if you, if, you, if you get stranded without any water, you're going to die. Right? So, all of, so in, in other words, when, when you think about a wilderness, you, you should think it's a place that's, that, that's full of, of lack, of not enough, and of danger. Um, and so when, when you see these snakes show up in, this, in the story, what, what God is doing is God has been hedging and protecting his people in the wilderness. And so what God does in this story is, for a time, he removes the hedge of that protection so that they are, for a short time, being subject to the natural 
uh, problems and issues, enemies, venomous snakes that are part of that desert, of the part of that wilderness. Right? And, that, and that's what you have here in this story. Right? You have God sending these, these, these poisonous snakes. But, but, but why are they even in the wilderness in the first place? Why, why, why did God even take them through this place? Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when, when Moses is recounting the history, the story of God's people, and he says, look, why, why did God bring you through all of that? Right? He says, look, your, your shoes didn't wear out. Your clothes remain new. Right? All of these things that would be, you know, if you're walking for a long time in the wilderness, that's, that's what would happen. Shoes wear out. Clothes wear out. And yet, when Moses is describing the, the people, he says, look, those things didn't happen. Why? Because God was protecting you. God was keeping those things from decaying, from falling off your feet. But why did he do that? In Deuteronomy 8.4, he says this. He says, look, to show, to demonstrate, to tell you that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes out the mouth of the Lord. Right? And if you're, if you're familiar with that verse, when we get in the New Testament, Jesus takes those words on his lips. And what do we have in the story whenever Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, in Matthew chapter 4? In that story, you have Jesus. It actually says that he was hungry. He was tired. And he was hungry. Right? And you need to know that Jesus was in a way, way worse place than the people of Israel. The people of Israel had food. They, got, they, were, they had food and they were tired of it. Jesus was hungry and tired and had no bread. In fact, when Satan shows up, he tempts him. Right? Not, not to get tired of food that he had, but to turn stone into food, into bread. And what does Jesus do? Jesus demonstrates that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what you have in this story. right? That, we, we, when you get in the New Testament, you see how the picture of, what it, of how discontent is to be redirected. It's through God's word. It's through his promises. Right? But then what, what about these fiery serpents? Right? Why, why serpents? I mean, there's plenty of other things in the wilderness that can kill you. Why serpents? Well, the serpent was actually part of the headpiece that Pharaoh wore. Sometimes you have seen these, if you've seen some of these, uh, these, these pictures or these images or these stories, you know that that's what, that's what formed the headpiece uh, for Pharaoh. So the serpent itself was the very symbol of their slavery. It, it, it embodied everything that was, that, that, that was truly to be associated with Egypt, a place of death, a place of slavery. So now what you have in this story is that by God's design for a time, they are experiencing the, blight, the, the bite of slavery to remind them of the, of the death um, that they, were, that they were under, the curse of death that they were under back in Egypt. Because that's what you have in this story. Right? You have the story is people are being bitten and people are dying. Right? The bite of slavery 
and the death associated with Egypt is now brought to the center. And that's what you have here, right? You have in this story. C.S. Lewis, in, uh, in a famous quote from the book, The Problem of Pain, right? He basically says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It does that, right? It does that. And, and that's what we have in this story, that, they are, that, they, that God is actually giving them a taste, small taste, of what is it that they were rescued out of. Right? They were rescued out of. But then after that, right, what do they do? What do you do? Right? Well, you have here at the end of the chapter, at the end, at the end, of, the, the end, the end of this passage, you have where God actually meets them in their discontent. So in verses 8, they go to, so in, so in, so in verse 6, they actually go to Moses, right? Moses intercedes for them, right? Moses intercedes for them. And when Moses intercedes for them, God says, hey, take, take, this, take this snake, right? And, and, your, and your translations might say brass, or it's really the word for copper. Copper is a reddish brown metal, Right? It, it's, a, it's a reddish in color because that's what we have here is, are these reddish or fiery, uh, fiery serpents. So it's not a real snake. It's a metal snake. It's, it's, in one sense, it's symbolic right? that what God is doing here. But, when they, but then he takes it up, puts it up, on the, puts it up on the pole for everyone to see. And when they look at it, and when they look at it, they are healed. Right? They're healed. So what... Why, why a bronze, a copper, a copper serpent? Right? If you notice that the, in the story, what they, what they began with, these snakes, these serpents, were representative of their suffering in Egypt. And then, now, it is symbolic of the very suffering that, that's happening in the wilderness. Right? But God often does this when he takes that which is associated with what he is not, in this case, serpent, and, and actually turns it on its head. It's upside down, right? Because now, instead of, of it being a symbol of suffering, it is now the very symbol of the deliverance, right? Because, and, and this is why later on, when you get in the New Testament, when Jesus actually explicitly points to this chapter. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What are the verses right before that? Verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. In the Old Testament, you have a suffering symbol. In the New Testament, you have the suffering servant. The very Jesus, the one who embodied all of life, now takes on death. In the Old Testament, that which is considered death is the one that brings life. That's what Jesus does. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why, when, that's why when we talk about Christ stepping into our place, he steps into the place of death. 
We stink. We are dying in the wilderness. Apart from everything. Apart from our inheritance. Apart from our deliverance. Right there in the middle of the wilderness where this thing is lifted up. And that's where we find life. Could it be, could it be that in the midst of our boredom and our discontent, in the middle of the journey, when the journey is long, when it is hard, and it feels like we're going around in circles, maybe you feel that you are not making much progress in the Christian life. Perhaps it has to do with a particular issue. Some kind of suffering, some kind of infirmity, some kind of family situation. It, it could be anything. It could be work-related. It, it could be personal. And, and, it's, and, 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 you are, and you are tired. And discontent is setting in and grumbling. You're starting, you're starting to see it come out of you. How do we, how do we address that? And, and what you have in this story is... You are being invited to look, to wonder at the same cross, the same one who delivered us, the same one who is taking us home, is the one that you are to look to in the midst of the journey. We need to recapture a sense of wonder, not at something new, but that, that same story that we've been told, that we've experienced. And in some ways, there's something in our hearts that needs to be able to say, tell me that story again. Let me close with two illustrations. And I hope we'll drive it home. Drive it home. When, you know, some of you have little children, right? If you have a child. When you take a child and you throw her up in the air, or throw him up in the air, what does he say? What does she say? Do it again. Right? And, and then you do it again. And you run out of gas, right? You're, you're tired. You're like, go find your mother, right? Or somebody, right? Find, find somebody else to do it, right? And, 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 and one writer says this look, the glory of a, the, 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 the nature of a child is to glory in the monotonous, right? To do the same thing over and over and over again. Now, you get a little bit older, right? We get tired of something, right? It, like once we leave a certain, uh, when we grow a little bit older, we step out of infancy, right? We, we right? And, 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 and we say, oh, you, know, you, know, like, you know, like the Christmas presents, right? That you open up, right? They've been asking for it for all year. And then they play with it for 10 minutes and then it's in the corner, right? You, you, you know that, right? Why, why, does, why do things run out of the ability to keep us wonder? It is not the nature of the thing. It's us, right? And, and, and G.K. Chesterton says it like this when he, when he puts it. He says, look, you know, just like that child, right? Just like the child who says, do it again, do it again, right? Can you imagine? And he, and he kind of says, it's like, can you imagine God who every morning looks out at the sun and says, do it again, right? Looks at the moon, do it again. Over and over again, every morning, do it again, right? Like God never gets tired. And, 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 and Chesterton says it like, he says, it's actually, you know, God is more, and, and I don't mean this irreverently, but God is more childlike, 
right? We, we feel like we are the adults in the relationship, right? Because we, we get tired, right? We run out of gas. We get bored. But, but, but God doesn't. God, God doesn't. He says, here's another example. He says, like, you know, most of the time when we think of a, a, bunch, of, uh, a bunch of flowers, it's like, oh, they look alike. Right? It's like God made a bunch of, he uses daisies as an example. It's like God makes a whole bunch of daisies. He says, he says perhaps it's God makes each one individually because he never gets tired of making one. He just makes one over and over again. You know, isn't it any wonder, going back to that passage in John chapter 3, Right? If you're familiar with that story in John chapter 3, when, when, when Jesus, when we have the John 3.16 verse, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. What, what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? What does he need to do? He needs to be what? Born again. Become an infant. Become child again. Because in our infancy, in our childlike, we are recapturing the wonder, the same good news, the same gospel. That's what we're being told to do. That's what we're being invited to do. And, and, and my challenge to you this, this, this morning is, is, to, is to stop distracting and diverging. And, and, maybe, and, and maybe to say, what, when I find myself in that place of discontent, maybe what I need most is what, I've, what I already have. What I, what I already know. What has already been done for me. Second illustration. With this I close. Some of you may know the story of, um, of Brittany Maynard. Uh, Brittany Maynard in 2014. At the age of 29. Travels to the state of Oregon. She's suffering from a, from a uh, from terminal, uh, terminal brain tumor. Right? She had six months to live. She travels to Oregon so that she can take her own life through physician-assisted suicide. Right? And, and in, her, in an article on CNN when they are leading up to that, she basically says, I want to die on my own terms. I want to die in my own bedroom with my husband, my mother, Favorite music playing in the background. And I will take a pill, and I want to go that way. At the same time, in Colorado Springs, there's another woman, 38 years old, mother of four young children, uh, wife and mother of four young children, has breast cancer, also terminal, stage four breast cancer. And she is dying. Right? It has already metastasized, gone into her blood, all of that. Right? And she writes a letter, an open letter to Brittany Maynard, pleading with her not to take her own life, not, not to go through the, the, these means, which was legitimate in Oregon. Right? She's not doing something that was illegal in that state. But in that letter to Brittany Maynard, she writes to her and she says, says I too am dying, Brittany. I too am dying. But in my dying, Christ protected my living. Because in his dying, I have living. He protected my dying. 
Right? He protected my living in his dying. November of that year, Brittany Maynard does take that pill. And she dies through physician-assisted suicide. In March of 2015, Kara Tippetts dies. But what caught my eye was this, was the title of the blog that Kara Tippetts wrote during that time. You know what the title of the board, the, 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 her blog was? Mundane Faithfulness. For us, when we hear the word mundane or monotonous, those are negative words. Does mundane faithfulness sound negative to you? Does traveling in the wilderness, faithfully trusting in the promises of God, being satisfied with the wonder of the good news of the gospel, is that enough for us? My challenge to you this morning, even for someone like Kara Tippetts who's dying, who died, right? She, she died. But during that entire time, to trust and know her faithfulness was, was not going to, was not, you know, if you ask like, what, what progress is she making for someone like that, right? Every day she lived was a day closer to death. Is faithfulness possible? The answer to that question is yes. Because you have a glorious savior and you can never lose. Right? We can never lose. So, unbeliever this morning, I, the distractions and your divergences, something that you are maybe holding on to because you don't want to find yourself being bored because you're afraid of what you might find. My challenge to you this morning is to, is to allow yourself to be there because it might reveal to you what you really need who you really are, our deficiencies and our lacks, our sinfulness, our rebellion, and maybe, just maybe, in that moment, we'll be confronted with the good news of the gospel. I pray that is true. Christian, are you bored? You tired of the journey? My challenge to you this morning is to say, God, the God who saved me, the God who is taking me home, the same God in the person of Christ who was raised for me. And as he was raised on that standard in the middle of the wilderness, we can, be re re we can recapture the good news and the wonder of the gospel again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your word. We thank you again, Lord, that you are, um, you are good. And, um, and we are those who would... Um, Lord, we confess that the journey is long, is hard, and we are so often tired. We are discontent. We are discontented people. Um, Father, we come to you in that, and knowing that only you uh, can suffice. The grace of God is that which can only fill us. Uh, we thank you for this table even now, uh, Lord, this, um, this food that you have given us uh, for the Christian pilgrimage. Lord, that you nourish us and you encourage us even through the supper that we need. So that as we partake of the supper together, even this morning, uh, Lord, we may get a, a, a taste, a foretaste of that bread. Feed us till we want no more, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Okay, uh, the way we take communion at Christ Fellowship is we come forward in small groups and, and, uh, and partake, and, uh, and then we'll pray, and then you'll seat, and then the next group will come up. Um, so Melvin will now fence the table for us. Um, just as we heard in the sermon today, um, you know, Christ feeds us, right? But know that this is, right, we have it way better than the people of Israel. They were fed with the bread of heaven. Christ gives us himself through these elements. And so, as we come forward, right, know that what, what Christ provides us at, at his table is to sup with him himself, is communion with him himself. Um, and when we do, right, our faith is encouraged. Um, but not only so, we also do it together. We do it with one another. Because it's a fellowship, it's a fellowship meal as we gather together with our brothers and sisters in the body. Um, but know that it is what we do um, as you come forward. Know that this is not something we take lightly. Um, and so for that reason, we ask that anyone who partakes in the supper is a, is a member in a, in a Bible-believing church. Um, and, um, and if you're not, we, we, ask, we all, all ask that you use this time to consider um, so that one day uh, you may participate uh, together uh, as a body. Uh, let me pray. Father, we ask now that even as we uh, partake of the supper together, uh, Lord, that you would, um, Lord, we know you're already present, uh, but we know that you, uh, you give yourself to us in a particular way uh, through these elements. So, Father, we ask that you would, as we set apart these elements from a common use uh, to a holy use, Lord, that you would feed, uh, that you would feed us, that we, that we may feed um, by faith, um, Thank you, the Lord, that you give us assurances of grace, of your goodness. Um, more than that, Lord, our communion and union with you, Lord, we celebrate together. Um, and we ask that you would do that even now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is given for the remission of sins of many. Do this in rooms. Okay, the first six rows would come up, please. Uh, that would be to you guys. Yes, thank you.
the body of Christ given for you, take and eat. The blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for uh, this gift of uh, your body, Jesus, that you have presented to us. What an awesome opportunity for us to taste and see that you are good. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do the blood. The blood of Christ shed for you. Okay, if everyone else could come up, please. The body of Christ given for you. Take me. blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
should be taken care of. That's right. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for again for this awesome gift that you give us, the opportunity to remember the sacrifice of Christ our Savior on the cross. We pray that you will be with us as we continue our worship in you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. together and sing. having uh, my wife and I and uh, the privilege and joy to worship the oldest joint. Um, 
Uh, receive now the Lord's benediction. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his great glory, with great joy, not boredom, great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, now, before all time, and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.